Okay. Now, uh, basically, Anna, my wife, is having a baby in about three weeks. Ish. 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 We don't know. But um, I got a bit of a fright this week because the couple that is, you know, that was ahead of us in line to have a baby uh, had their baby this week, two weeks early. So that kind of threw me into a little bit of a panic. And I thought, I don't know, what, when is this actually going to happen? 5th of March is when he's due, but uh, who knows? So I figure that I've got about three weeks, give or take. I don't know. Basically, I'm just going to keep preaching now until the baby comes. That's the deal. <laughs> Not continuously, but just Sundays. <laughs> And uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. So I've got a three-week series that I want to do. Whether I get to do the whole lot is yet to be seen, but we'll just see how we go. And what I want to do uh, over these next three weeks is circle back again to our threefold purpose as a church, loving God, loving each other, loving the world. Uh, That's our vision statement. That's our purpose statement. That's our mission statement. That is who we are. It provides an orientation for us as a church and for all of our ministries. Uh, You could think of that like an upward, inward, outward dimension. Upward, loving God. Inward, loving one another. Outward, loving the world. But I know that those statements can remain very, very abstract if we're not careful. They can remain vague and ill-defined. And so what I want to do over these next three weeks is unpack these ideas in the, in the life of our church and in the ministry of our church. What does it mean concretely to love God, love each other, and love the world? And the way that I want to do that is that I've chosen a passage of Scripture that I think captures the heart of each of these dimensions of our church And I want to work through uh, this key text in each of the three cases uh, so that our understanding of our mission and our identity as a church is grounded in the Word of God and is drawn from there. And from there we make practical application into our lives and into our church life. Sound okay? All right. So this morning, loving God. That's where we're going to start with this, this whole idea of loving God, which is big and broad and sometimes vague and sometimes fuzzy. And that's why it needs a bit of defining. The passage we're going to go to is 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, that's where we are, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, a letter that Peter the Apostle wrote to Christians who were living in various places of, of what, was, what is now Turkey. Uh, then it was various provinces of the Roman Empire, and he writes to encourage them and to strengthen them and to challenge them as they live out their faith within the context of the empire of their day. So 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll start at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says... See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, Early on in our marriage, Anna and I, uh, Anna used to say some weird things, really weird things. We'd be talking away, we'd be having a conversation, and in the middle of the conversation she would say this, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. (laughs) Anybody recognize that? And, and, And I would have no idea what she meant by that. And, and then other times she'd say, humpadink, humpadink, humpadink. And I wouldn't have any idea what that meant. And then sometimes when she thought that I was not telling the truth, she would say liar in a really high-pitched voice that I'm not even going to try and imitate it. And I, I just thought I'd married a weirdo. I, I just thought, well, I'm just going to have to deal with this. But then I saw the movie Princess Bride. And it all became revealed. What she'd been doing all of this time is quoting these lines from this movie that I hadn't seen, and so they made absolutely no sense to me. But as soon as I saw the movie, everything fell into place, and I figured out what she was saying in various contexts and could actually follow along with her. Now, that's a little bit like, and only a little bit like, what Peter is doing in this chapter. There's a bunch of images here in 1 Peter 2 that sound quite strange, that sound quite obscure. Images like a priesthood, like uh, priests and sacrifices, a spiritual house, a special possession, a holy nation. All of these things can be quite obscure references until you see the movie or at least hear the story that Peter is referring to because he is taking us back into a particular narrative, into a particular story that these images come out of. And when you get your head around that story, what what he's saying here clicks into place. Peter is telling us something about our identity as a church by taking us back into Israel's story. And a particular part of Israel's story, back in Exodus 19. Flick back there for a minute if you can. Exodus 19 is where Peter's language comes from, and this is a scene early in Israel's story where Israel arrives at Mount Sinai, and God's about to to, to give Moses the law to reveal to the people of God as to how they should live and conduct their lives with one another. But before God gets to all of that, he makes this extraordinary statement to Moses. He says in Exodus 19, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Can you hear the language of 1 Peter? Out of, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So, so God here makes the statement that Israel as a nation is to be a kingdom of priests. Israel is going to be a priesthood. Now, if you've read a bit of the Old Testament, that might sound strange because we typically think of Israel as having priests, but not being priests. Israel had a special class of people within that nation who were set apart as priests. But here God is saying something more. He's saying, as a nation, as a whole people, you are going to be a priesthood. You're all priests. Every one of you is part of this national priesthood. And the best way to think about a priesthood in this context is that a priest was a mediator between God and people. A priest stood in the gap between God and humanity, 
and mediated that relationship, brokered that relationship, if you like. In fact, the, the Latin word for priest, the word pontifex, it literally means bridge. Bridge. And this is what God is saying to Israel. As a people, as a nation, you're going to be a bridge. You're going to be a bridge between me and the rest of humanity and all creation, a bridge over which my blessing might flow to the world. You're going to reflect me to the world, and you're going to represent the world to me. Israel had this dual role, representing God to the world and representing the world to, the God, to God as a holy and a royal priesthood. That was Israel's function in the world, this mediating role between God and the rest of his creation. Now, back to First Peter. Peter knows how the story goes from there. Because remember, Peter has walked with Jesus. Peter knew Jesus personally, and he knew that Jesus has come as the ultimate bridge, the ultimate priest, the ultimate pontifex between God and humanity. That Jesus, within his own being, has fulfilled what, all, what Israel was always intended to be. He was the ultimate mediator between God and humanity. He reconciled the two together in his own body on the cross. And now Peter knows that Jesus has become the cornerstone of a new temple. A temple that is made up not of physical stones and bricks, but of people. Living stones, as Peter puts it. Living stones, men and women and children, fitted together into the house of God. A living, breathing temple made of people. That's why we call the church a temple. Because it is a spiritual house. It is the dwelling place of God on earth. Not a building. Not a particular physical location. But the people of God, now embodying the presence of God in the world. And that is why Peter uses this language of priesthood and applies it to the church. Because the church has now taken over that, that vocation, that calling, that destiny of Israel in the world. This is why in this passage, if you look down in verse 9. Peter uses all of these titles for the church. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You know where he gets all those titles from? Israel. They're all names given to Israel in the Old Testament. That's where he's going. And Peter co-opts those labels and he loads them all up onto the church because he's saying to the church, now you have taken over the role of Israel in the world. You are now that priesthood that Israel began by being. You are now that priesthood. You, as a church, are mediating between God and the world. You, as a priesthood, are now called to broker that relationship, reflecting God to people and representing people to God. And we'll see how this works in a moment, but it's important to get your head around this general idea. We, as a church, now take over the role of Israel as a bridge between God and the world. That's the heart of what it means to love God. See how this is far more than just loving God, your own personal little devotional relationship with Jesus? That's, that's critical, but it's not enough. As a community, as a people, as a nation, the church is now that bridge between God and the rest of his world. Reflecting God to the world, the conduit through which God's blessing flows to the world, and representing people, humanity, creation, back to God. So I want to look for a couple of minutes at just how this dual role works of the church, reflecting God to people, reflecting people to God. First, this idea 
that the church is a priesthood in that it reflects God, represents God to people. Notice the word that Peter uses to describe this priesthood. In verse 5, he says, You, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That word holy is important. We're not just a priesthood, we're a holy priesthood. And the word holy, it doesn't mean morally righteous, it doesn't mean keeps every command, it doesn't mean keeps all the rules, it doesn't mean everything's perfect, it means set apart. It means set apart for God. That was the point of being a priest in the Old Testament. You were set apart. You didn't have a regular job. You didn't have a regular life. You were set apart. You were dedicated to God's service in the temple. And God intended Israel as a nation to be a priesthood in that they were to be set apart. Now that doesn't mean, the point is not, that Israel was geographically set apart and had nothing to do with anyone else. The point is that Israel was to be set apart in their character and their conduct. It's the whole point of the law. That through their common life together, Israel would look different to the rest of the nations around them. That by loving one another, by worshipping God alone and not a pantheon of gods as other nations did, by genuinely loving family members, neighbours, even enemies, and welcoming outsiders in, Israel would be different from other nations. By rejecting horrific practices of child sacrifice and other things that some of the other nations were doing, and, and, and only offering animal sacrifices, Israel would be set apart. In all of these ways, Israel was to look different so that the nations might look at Israel and see what God's plan for humanity really looked like and see what human community is actually supposed to be. See, this is the point. This is why you can't talk about loving God and loving the world in isolation, because they have so much to do with each other. Israel was to love God for the sake of the world. Israel was chosen for the sake of the world. And Israel was intended to be different from the nations for the sake of the nations, so that they might see this unique community, and ultimately that they might be drawn to God. This is how it is for the church. This is God's plan and design for us as a priesthood that we might be a holy priesthood and that our lives individually and our life together might look different from what goes on out there. That in the way we live, in our thought, in our speech, in our conduct, in our character, our lives might look different. And that within our relationships here together and in life groups, other gatherings, times that we're interacting and forming relationships, that we might live differently. That we might offer forgiveness where the world would only offer hostility. That we'd bring reconciliation where the world just tears people apart. That we would break down barriers of inequality and lift one another up and give dignity and respect to one another where people don't find it in other places. That's what the church is supposed to be so that we are a unique and a distinct, even a peculiar community in the world. I read a book over summer called Renovation of the Church, and it's really just the story of a church, the story of a church called Oak Hills Church in California. And they've been going a long time. For, for many, many years, they were really entrenched in a model that you might have heard of with churches called the seeker service model. 
And uh, I'm, I'm not wanting to bag out that model, but the way that it basically worked for them is that their services, their church services, were all about um, putting on a great show, making church as cool as it could be, um, you know, great lights, drama, top-class band, pop psychology preaching, nothing too religious, nothing too offensive, nothing too confrontational, just getting people in. And they, they went down this road for many, many years. They grew and they grew and they grew as a church, and they got to a point of being confronted by the fact that really what they were doing was just entertaining people. And no, very few lives were really being changed. That really what they were doing in the end was perpetuating a consumer mindset. They were treating people as religious consumers and then wondering why people act like religious consumers, picking and choosing and having only a nominal interest in actually growing as a Christian. So they made some serious changes, and the book just talks through the changes they made, changing their worship service so that it wasn't just entertaining people, but seeking to engage people, seeking to draw people in, and putting responsibility back on people to worship. They changed the way they preached. They changed the way they did community. They changed the way they did outreach. It was just a total rejection of a consumer-driven way of doing church. They placed a high, high value on spiritual formation and encouraging people to be transformed into the image of Christ. Steeped in grace. This is not legalism. This is not works. This is steeped in the understanding that we are the butterflies. But it's then helping people to become what they already are in practice. Before they started making all those changes to every ministry in their church, they had 100, uh, sorry, 1,700 people attending on Sunday morning, 1,700 people. So they're classed as a megachurch in the States, part of the whole megachurch culture over there. Things were going really well. At the time of writing the book, they were down to 700. So you think instinctively it's going to go up, don't you? You think, great, healthy church, making good changes. This sounds positive. Surely the attendance will go up. But I tell you this, when you get serious about spiritual formation, and becoming a unique and a distinct community, it's not a recipe for church growth. There's a hundred other things you'd do if you wanted to grow the biggest church in town before you focused on becoming a holy priesthood. If you want to get people in the doors, there's a hundred other ways to do it. This is not about church growth. This is about church health. This is not about growing in numbers. This is about growing to become more like Jesus. And that's what we're about. That is why we unashamedly talk about spiritual growth being a disciple, being an apprentice of Jesus, following him over time in a, in a fully grace-filled way, having our character transformed to, to increasingly reflect the character of Jesus. And we're all on the journey, and we all fail every single day, but as a community, we want to help one another along and stir one another forward on that journey because that's our calling as a holy priesthood. And we do it, friends, not just for our own sake, not even just for God's sake, but for the sake of the world because they need to see something different here. They need to see lives that look different. They need to see in your workplaces and homes and on your streets, they need to see lives and families that look different. That's why character formation is important. That's why transformation is important. That's why we're a church that unashamedly focuses on loving God through the formation of our character into the image of Christ over the course of our lives together. So that's how we reflect God to the world. We reflect his character. So that just like the priests in the Old Testament, when people look at us individually, when they look at us together, 
They see something of the likeness and the character of God. See and smell the aroma of Christ in us together. That's the point. And so secondly, then, this issue of representing the world to God. If part of our role as a priesthood is to reflect God's character to the world through the formation of our character, how do we represent the world to God? How does that go the other way over the bridge? Well, come back to this verse in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Just wonderful loading up of all these titles of Israel onto the church. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And here's the, here's the instruction that comes out of that. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. This is about worship. That's worship language. Central to Israel's role in the world was to be a worshiping community wasn't a tag-on, wasn't an add-on. This was fundamentally who they were, a worshipping people. And Israel, again, didn't just worship God for their own sake, but for the sake of the world. Let me read you just one passage. You don't need to turn there, but some words from Psalm 105. And listen to the point of Israel's worship. Give praise to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing of him, sing his praises, tell of all his wonderful acts. See, the way that the Psalms picture Israel's worship is it's like Israel's on stage, worshiping God, and the audience is all the other nations of the world, watching, learning, observing, and hopefully being drawn closer to Yahweh. That's the point of Israel's worship, for God and for the sake of the world. And that's why we are called as a holy priesthood to be a worshiping community. We represent the world to God through our worship, because when we worship, we tell of the mighty deeds of God. It's the way another translation puts that phrase that you may tell of his mighty deeds, that we may declare the story. That's what worship is, declaring the story. It's celebrating the story, enacting the story through communion, affirming the story in all of its bigness and breadth. The story of Scripture, the story of God, we declare it and we tell it, and we tell it to one another, we declare it before God, and we speak it, in a sense, to the world in our worship. Just as Israel's worship was a testimony to the nations. Our worship is a testimony to the nations around us and the people around us. And this, I think, is part of why Peter talks about us as a priesthood offering a sacrifice. We offer spiritual sacrifices. We're quite used to hearing that language around worship, that worship is a sacrifice. We bring a sacrifice of praise. But think about this. In the Old Testament, a sacrifice was always brought on behalf of someone else. The priest didn't just offer a sacrifice for them. They offered a sacrifice on behalf of this guy over here who's bringing that goat because of something that he wants to say or confess or celebrate about God. The priests were mediators. And as a priesthood, we worship God on behalf of the world. Think about that. That you're standing here, sitting here today, worshiping God on behalf of your colleagues who aren't here who don't know him and therefore are not worshipping him. You're bringing a sacrifice of praise on their behalf. Doesn't that open up your understanding of what worship is? 
You're coming and bringing the worship that your neighbors are refusing to give. You're coming and bringing the worship on their behalf and in hopeful expectation of the day when one day they might be sitting here with you, worshiping God along with you. That's the nature of worship. We are bringing the praises of people who don't know Jesus yet to God on their behalf in their absence and with a prayer in our heart that one day they'll come to know him too. We worship God on behalf of the world. We bring the groanings of the world to God, the troubles and the, and the suffering and the deep pain. We bring it to God in worship. And we bring the praise of creation to God, the grateful praise of the earth. All creation crying out to God. That's our responsibility to bring it, to bring what Doesn't this get you a little bit beyond just kind of standing there, shuffling your feet and looking at your bulletin as the songs are playing? It's not just about you. It's not even just about God. It's also about the world. We love God on behalf of and for the sake of the world. And that's why we place such importance on being a worshipping community. It's not the preliminaries before you get to the sermon. It's not the warm-up stuff before you get to the main event. Worship is not bolted onto the life of our church as something extra or additional for super spiritual people. It is absolutely central to what it means to be a priesthood in the world, reflecting God to the world and representing the world to God in our worship. And when we worship, we sing in anticipation of the day when all creation is going to join in the song. A few years ago, when Anna and I were in the States, we went and saw Handel's Messiah playing in Carnegie Hall in New York. It's a wonderful experience at Christmas time. And uh, if, you, if you've ever heard Handel's Messiah, you know, it starts, you've got the orchestra there set up and you've got the choir there, but it starts with just one tenor, one guy singing the words of Psalm 2. And then the other soloists join in and the orchestra builds and it weaves its way through varying movements. And the choir, I think, comes in and out at varying times. And then you get to the Hallelujah Chorus. And there's that spine-tingling moment where everyone in the entire hall the entire concert hall just instinctively stands. It just sends a shiver down your spine. I mean, nobody says anything, everyone just stands. And the hallelujah chorus is belted out. And the choir is going full throttle, and the orchestra is, is full on, and the soloist is singing, and it just fills the room. It's this transcendent experience of a deeply Christian anthem of praise and declaration of praise to God. Hallelujah. Words taken from Revelation. Maybe you could think of our worship now like the voice of that first tenor. The first refrain of a song that one day all of humanity and all of creation will join in. That one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day the full choir, the full orchestra is going to be there, but we get to worship now. We get to worship in advance of that day, in anticipation of that day, and declaring that that day is coming. It's part of what we're doing. We're affirming the story and where the story is going. That's why worship is so integral to our life as a church, for our sake, for Christ's sake, and for the sake of the world. And so the challenge that Peter brings is this. Are we prepared to be a church? 
that stands in that gap between God and creation, that stands in the breach between God and the rest of humanity and the world, and faithfully serves as a bridge reflecting God to the world and the world to God. What kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to try and be the coolest church in town, the faddish church, the entertaining church that just continues the narrative of consumerism that has so infiltrated not just life but church life as well? Or are we going to be something different? Are we going to be a faithful priesthood, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood? reflecting God to the world through our character and conduct and reflecting and representing the world to God through our gathered worship. It's the kind of church that we're becoming. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.